Hello and welcome to The Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. I'm your host, Dr. David Hardy, and today we have an amazing guest on our show. He is the grandson of R.J. Reynolds from the Reynolds Tobacco family, and he is also the CEO of Tobacco Free Earth. Welcome to the show, Patrick. <laughs> I'm glad to be on, door, on board, Dr. David. <laughs> Excellent. So one of the startling things I, I, I first read about you was that in 1986, you were part of a congressional hearing and you went in front of all these congressmen and way back in 1986, completely different political environment than today, and you asked for a ban on all tobacco advertising. I did. I did. And they asked, they asked me why. And, and uh, why would a Reynolds step out and, you know, against this family business? Well, uh, the answer is surprisingly simple. Uh, mm -hmm. My only memories of my father, R.J. Reynolds Jr., the son yes. of the man who founded the company back in 1850, no, 1875, uh, my only memories of my dad are of a guy lying down on his back, dying from emphysema caused by smoking wow. the brands that made our family wealthy and powerful. So, you know, I, I remember him coughing and gasping for breath, counting the time he had left to live. So that's why, uh, as a man, when I grew up, I, I, you know, only met him really for the first time that I can remember uh, when I was 15. He abandoned his sons. He was not oh, around. Wow. Yeah. Jeez. And he was married four times. He was a, a playboy and a, mm -hmm. a major heir in the 1920s. He was the, the essence of the gilded F. Scott Fitzgerald uh, character, the great Gatsby. And <laughs> okay. uh, although I don't think he was introverted, he was uh, like Gatsby. He was more uh, extroverted and running around with Cafe Society in New York and Elsa Maxwell and all these celebrities. But right. it was R.J. Reynolds and everybody knew that name. And yeah, uh, yeah, so I wrote a book about my father with a great writer who is still a good friend. And the name of the book is The Gilded Leaf, the G-I-L-D-E-D -E Leaf. And it uh, received a lot of acclaim, uh, more because of, you know, Tom Shackman than me. Uh, <laughs> in the new, what great reviews in the Washington Post and the you know New York uh, Times and all the many so many newspapers loved the mm -hmm. book and most every library bought it and it was, it was a bestseller. Wow! And it does tell the story of my family, but not from the an anti-smoking point of view, but really as a biography of three generations of the Reynolds family. So. Right. The book is quite a good read. It's, you know, people say, wow, what a great read. And, you know, it quickly picks up speed and interest uh, and becomes an absorbing tale of fortune and misfortune, one reviewer said. Right. So, let, you know, let, let's, the story. yeah, let's dive into that family dynamic a bit more in a second here. Uh, let's kind of just paint the picture, though. You, you've already started it, um, basically, how glamorous smoking was in in different decades and and in a different era because things have shortchanged and definitely because of the work you've been doing. But like, I remember growing up and there was still smoking on airlines 
Uh, the legal age for smoking in Canada was 16 at that, that point in time. Uh, in, in high school, there was still a smoking section outside the school that people could go to. And uh, I also remember uh, when I was in college, I worked as a bouncer for a brief, brief moment in time. And uh, the, the fumes of the smoke in that room would send me basically the next day feeling like I was hung over without having a single drink that night. And then I, wow. I still remember pulling up these ads of like the Flintstones promoting cigarettes and then uh, different uh, brands where it was the brands that doctors recommend the most. Like what was your take on basically the glamorization and all the advertising in the, in the tobacco world back? back well, in of the course, day? It, it was really about selling cigarettes. And my grandfather's company was the company. Uh, he passed away in 1918. But mm -hmm. by the 1920s, the advertising execs that were uh, managing the R.J. Reynolds account for Camel Cigarettes and so on uh, began hiring flappers and women uh, to be smoking and glamorizing. So it really began back then in the 1920s. And, uh, you know, I don't think that there wasn't a lot of medical data available that smoking causes lung cancer and heart disease. But mm -hmm. uh, we certainly know that now. Right. And but I suspect even my grandfather, you know, worried that there might be ill health consequences to inhaling smoke down in your lungs. And uh, he held up the introduction of camels in 1913, while he was still alive, to, so that um, he, he thought that the paper might cause cancer. And his brothers called him from St. Louis and said, don't worry, RJ. <laughs> the paper we tested in Baltimore and St. Louis, and uh, it doesn't cause cancer. It is safe. And RJ said, roll him out. And you know, 100 million people died in uh, America. And by now, uh, we've got a worldwide total of around 5 to 10 million people a year dying from smoking. And as smoking declines, that annual number of deaths is going to be declining too. But they began aggressively marketing and advertising uh, tobacco products in poor third world countries in the Middle East and uh, other oh, nations. Wow where American products were sought after and they used glamorous models uh, targeting women. You've come a long way, baby. Smoke this brand or that brand. So they have really done ruthless advertising. They've even targeted uh, children as young as 14 in their ad campaigns. So uh, what they did is amoral. It is wrong. And you know, in America, we can't ban tobacco advertising because, right. um, you know, we have the First Amendment here. But in mm -hmm. Australia, they have banned tobacco advertising. Right. They're not encumbered by, uh, you know, a rigid interpretation of the First Amendment. Even with the First Amendment, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. So in my book, it makes a solid legal basis for banning tobacco advertising in this country, too. They've limited it, uh, and they've gotten rid of the billboards voluntarily, voluntarily <laughs> right yeah. um, it's another story i could go on for an hour about all the you know the what's happened but in the big picture david um in the u.s in the last 50 years we have cut the smoking rate by about half which is huge from its peak in uh in the 1960s 
And the CDC has attributed the, the big drop in smoking rates in the U.S. to three main things. And right. there are really five main things, but uh, the three things we were able legally to do in this country were to tax tobacco, state taxes, raise the federal tax on tobacco. Uh, and certainly we were able to um, have smoking bans when the science uh, was clear that secondhand smoke causes lung cancer and heart disease in non-smokers, bystanders. Then there became a solid uh, basis uh, to start banning smoking in workplaces. And that spread all over the country. I was right in the forefront of that when it was right. controversial and yeah. getting out planes. So banning smoking, tobacco taxes, and lastly, education campaigns that we've, we've put up in schools, okay. um, which have been very effective at, you know, uh, hiring slick ad agencies in state after state that devoted part of their tobacco tax revenue Part of the settlement they all got, the $240 billion settlement, uh, which was the state suing to recover the cost of Medicare and Medicaid over the years. And mm -hmm. uh, part of that was used uh, to fund large, strong ad campaigns. But interestingly, in the big picture, the only other thing I'll say about the big picture in tobacco control uh, right. is there uh, is that Notably, 80% uh, of Big Tobacco's political campaign donations went to Republican candidates and PACs. Yes, it um, went to Democrats in tobacco states. But mm -hmm. uh, it's quite interesting to see that it was the Republicans who blocked any tobacco tax hike under George Bush Jr. Um, for eight years. And as soon as Obama got in office, the moment we had a Democratic Congress and a Democratic president, we got a uh, immediate, within two weeks of Obama taking office, we got the 69 cent federal tax hike on tobacco that we had been seeking every year and that was tabled every year under the Republican administration. The Republicans have an ideology of don't tax, don't regulate. Uh, but honestly, uh, I'm not buying it. I think it's a flaw. <laughs> in right. the Republicans' platform, you know, because, you you know, I'm a pragmatist when it comes to uh, legislation and policy. You do mm -hmm. what works. Nobody likes regulation. Nobody likes taxes. But when it comes to tobacco, taxes and regulation, <laughs> banning smoking in public, really work. So it, a good it thing, gives absolutely. the lie. Yeah, yeah, and I now, think now, uh, speaking Republicans about using it as views. Is the wrong thing, right? Yeah, no, definitely. Now, speaking about Obama, in 2015, he actually presented you with a Lifetime Achievement Award for the work you've been doing with this. Correct? Yeah, he did, and I was so honored and and thrilled to get the White House Lifetime Achievement Award. I mean, <laughs> wow! Uh, it is you know nobody's getting rich fighting tobacco, and right. my wife yeah, says, that's... "Show me the money. We're going to make some money." But you know, I've got my nonprofit, Tobacco Free Earth. We have right. a solid base of donors, uh, and we do need support so I can continue this work. I want to go do it in, in, in abroad, in countries right. where there is still a high rate of smoking, like Russia 
and China and the Middle East and mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> Russia, maybe not right now, but you know, it's not, <laughs> not a happy place for Americans to go. But well, to isn't sure, that another uh, thing that the, the tobacco industry did was that after sales started to plummet in, in North America and in the Western world, was they started to shift their marketing to, to developing nations instead. They did. Yeah, they did. They began aggressively, in fact, going after poor, uneducated people in the third world who coveted American products, who mm-hmm. thought they were cool. And uh, the rate of smoking in those countries skyrocketed by 73% in a 10 or 15 year period in the 70s and 80s. And that has, you know, and once you get addicted, it's almost impossible to stop. So, you know, maybe we should uh, cover a little bit about tobacco cessation since you're in the addiction control area. And I don't know how well, uh, you know, the mainstream tobacco cessation communities, uh, science and methods would mesh with your own. But if you like, I can chat a little bit about how, what the mainstream thoughts are about quitting smoking right yeah definitely um i'm very interested in uh in basically looking at how the brain is wired and how the brain adapts and changes and uh my perspective on addictions whether it's being drug addictions whether it's being uh, diet addictions uh, sugar addictions um and tobacco is that all all of this is basically an attempt to change the state of how your your brain and nervous system are firing. There's people that can have like a drag of of a cigarette and not become addicted to it, and then there's other people that can take take that first kind of drag or hit of it, and then they they shake when they don't don't have a cigarette. And uh, all of that is basically telling us that there's an underlying state that the brain's in, and that. In order to make a change to these systems, you have to first kind of identify what parts of the brain are firing too much or too little, and then figure out a exercise stimulation modality or nutrition or supplement to help support these pathways to get them working better. And uh, I've had uh, counselors refer uh, post-addiction patients to me, and then I've also uh, had the had the experience of working with uh, diabetics who are really addicted to sugars as well. And mm-hmm. one thing with uh, the post-addiction clients that uh, was really fascinating to me is that uh, a lot of them were trading one addiction for another, that uh, it sort of seemed the, the thing to hand them a pack of cigarettes and, and coffee after you, you got them sort of cleaned up from the, the drug addiction. And uh, what is kind of that mainstream uh, uh, mentality out there then on, on uh, tobacco addictions and, and treating that? Is it still kind of the willpower approach or what have you been exposed to then? Well, in the big picture, uh, sure. And I think this does coincide with what you're saying. Uh, it's agreed in the scientific community that that. Smokers have partially a psychological addiction to smoking, mm-hmm. partially a physiological addiction to the nicotine uh, in tobacco. And right. 
So the physiological and the psychological ratio can vary from person to person, as you suggested. And uh, for some people, uh, you know, once you overcome the nicotine chemical addiction, there isn't a lot of psychological addiction. But for others, the psychological addiction was huge. For me, it was huge. I, I remember smoking when I was a smoker for over 15 years. And, uh, and I quit in 1985, finally, after 12 failures. But wow. I, I remember <laughs> and watching the smoke curling in the air. And right. It is yes. psychologically addicting and very relaxing, too. So yes. anyway, yep. uh, the mainstream ways of quitting smoking uh, and what I say in our, my quit smoking program at our website, tobaccofree.org, uh, at tobaccofree.org, I say to the people, number one, right up at the top, you know, uh, you can do it. Because right. we know that uh, people who have failed at quitting smoking uh, often have failed five or six times previously. They've tried yes. and tried. And every time they fail, uh, they are getting an idea that, I can't do this. And then the next time, boy, I really can't do this. And then the next time, oh my God, I'll never be able to do this. This is impossible. And they just go back to smoking. So right. every time they, they fail, so I say to them, you can do it. Mm -hmm. Take comfort in the fact that, that your past failures to quit are part of the normal journey toward becoming a non-smoker. Most people do fail several times before quitting successfully. So number two, get in a program uh, and it could be uh, get help, but a lot of people think I can do this myself. I'm going to be strong, I'm going to be right. independent. No, you mm -hmm. get in a program. People, and I tell the kids when I speak at schools, even in colleges, people who succeed in life. And my greatest teacher in my life, the psychologist Irene Casola, who wrote uh -huh. a few books, Casola with a K, she said, People who succeed get help, Patrick. Right. A doctor gets a, a, you know, people get a doctor when they're sick. They get a lawyer when they need legal contracts they, and so on. Uh, exactly. And people yeah. who succeed get help. I think they, you know, a businessman gets an accountant to do the accounting and, you know, an advertising person to do the advertising. Successful people get help. So get in a program. And um, whatever the program is, there are many good programs. The mainstream accepted ones are nicotine replacement, uh, Zyban, of course, the pharmaceutical companies have the big money to do the mm -hmm. studies that get published in medical journals. But um, I believe in also the, the to address some of the other, the psychological issues of quitting, um, I put together at our website, Tobacco Free Earth, uh, tobaccofree.org. Right. Uh, we are Tobacco Free Earth. But I put together on the quitting tips page, um, you know, the boilerplate points that really are in almost every quit smoking program. Number one, and I invite you, the most important one is coming up, but things like drink a lot of water, get up out of your chair and go for a walk when you start feeling the craving coming on. Mm -hmm. um, do the yeah, deep breathing. Deep breathing mm -hmm. is the most powerful. And I invite you yeah, to do it with yeah. me now. And you're probably very familiar with it because it's part of what you do. But just for fun, and if, if you're listening out there, do it with me now. On the count of three, I'm going to ask you to take a great big deep lung full of air. 
All right. And as you, then I'm going to ask you to exhale it really slowly. Mm-hmm. And as you exhale, just let your arms drop to your side. Let your feet stretch out in front of you. And you're going to let all the tension leave your body. So one, two, three, inhale deep as you can. And then very slowly let the air out and let your chin kind of go over on your chest and let the tension go out your fingers and toes. Close your eyes and one, two, three, inhale. Slowly let the air out, let it go slowly, slowly let that chin go over on your chest and let the tension out your fingers and toes. And inhale one more time. Slowly let the air out, let all that air and tension go out your fingers and toes. Just let your head go over. Now, look at me. Look at an object in the room. And notice how you feel. Look at another object. Mm-hmm. Notice how you feel. Now, report to me how you feel, David. Absolutely. Breathing is that relaxation exercise that just helps us recover. And uh, I think you said it perfectly. Like now that we've done it, you've got that feeling of what that relaxation is like and and what a good breath of air does. And I think one of the things that was really important that you mentioned earlier was watching your, your father not be able to do that. And yeah. just how precious the breath is. And uh, it, it really, when, it, when we sum it up, the pleasure and relaxation we can get just from doing something that should naturally be there is taken away. It's, it's horrific. And uh, a lot of people out there would say that, yeah, your family's responsible for killing millions of people with, with their products here. And kind of the what's the psychological and emotional toll on on yourself when when people bring that up well, well my teacher Irene Casorla uh, and my psychologist uh, said take guilt Patrick and throw it out the window throw it over your shoulder don't feel guilty right she said healthy shame fine you did something you know you shouldn't have done a little healthy mm-hmm. shame that's fine but the rest of it throw the shame, throw the guilt out the window. So I don't feel that I had anything to do with uh, promoting smoking. In fact, I've devoted my life uh, to reducing smoking rates through pushing for government policy that we know will do that, despite the idea of don't let the government interfere. It's just a false narrative. Mm -hmm. And because the policies work of the ones I outlined, tobacco tax hikes, smoking bans, and education in schools and on TV and TV ads. So the bottom line is I don't feel guilty. I do what I do because it feels good. You know, when you do the right thing, it Mm -hmm. feels somehow right. You feel so right with the world and right with yourself. And that's more my motivation than out of a negative, some kind of negative thing. Right. Definitely. Now, a lot of people out there are probably asking the question, though, uh, did you grow up with uh, wealth and affluence because of uh, the, the uh, product and uh, the profits that were made 
from your yeah, family? Yeah, it, it really is. Uh, you know, people make a lot of assumptions about me. Yeah, definitely. Uh, mm -hmm. My parents were only married for about, oh, seven, seven or eight years from 1952 to no, 1945 to 52. So okay. my mother was a gorgeous starlet under contract to Warner Brothers. She would stop traffic. She was so beautiful. Right. If you go to, uh, um, oh God, uh, tobaccofree.org slash book. There's mm -hmm. about my book and you'll see a picture of her. But she got caught in an affair with a big Latin playboy who had quite a notorious reputation. <laughs> Very famous guy. His name was Porfirio Ruby Rosa. Okay. And he married Doris Duke and Barbara Hutton oh, and a lot of extremely wealthy American heiresses. Yes. And my mother was more of a, uh, I don't want to say a trifle. I mean, they were in love, but yes. they had an affair while she was still married to my father. And I said, what'd you have the affair for? And one night she had a couple of drinks and mm -hmm. both my mother and father were drinkers. God, but she, you know, which is interesting, but done a little work on that. But, uh, <laughs> and I believe that if you haven't been in psychotherapy and I say it openly, that you're not fully educated. If you haven't, right. and I say it when I speak at colleges, say, move mm -hmm. your butt, get in the therapist. If you haven't taken inventory of the way your parents treated you when you were little, uh, you're not fully educated. I'm sorry. And you will not get full clarity about your present life without having right. been with a therapist. So move your butt, get in therapy. And uh, so back on my, my mother and father. Um, so they got divorced. And my dad left when I was three. But because she had been named uh, in, in an affair, in those days, there wasn't no-fault divorce. Whoever got, whoever had the affair got mm -hmm. less money or had to right. pay less money, whatever. And mm -hmm. uh, so my mother only got like a couple million bucks, most of it tied up in real estate and a tax-free right. bond trust fund at 2% that could never be changed or invested other than tax-free bonds. So it was my father's revenge on her. Jeez. And so she yeah. didn't have a lot of money. Um, mm -hmm. and I grew up kind of a normal environment. Luckily she invested the money she did have in IBM and it skyrocketed. So that enabled her to send me to private schools because my father wasn't doing it. And, um, you know, uh, he had big, vast estates. And in the end of his life, he left almost all of his money to his fourth wife, uh, to whom he'd been married for only, you know, uh, a year, whatever, and mm -hmm. had known her only, uh, less than three years, I think. So, but she was a good woman and she passed last summer, sadly. And wow. um, she got the great bulk of my father's fortune and not me, so, and not my brothers. So, and my mother had very little money. So, you know, I didn't grow up with, with the vast estates and the servants and thank God in a way, because, right. yeah. you know, the ones who do grow up with that have a lot <laughs> baggage to overcome. And I always say when I when I speak at family office conferences to the children of billionaires and the billionaires, here's the do's and don'ts of bringing up children in a wealthy family. Tell them they're going to have to go out in the world and work. They have to get a job. They have to do something. And that you're not going to just be there giving them money to go to Nikki Beach 
uh, unless they've really gotten great grades in college. And then, yeah, okay, Nikki Beach and Saint-Tropez, the Cave du Roi, I've been there. And, uh, you know, <laughs> ran around the world with the children, the billionaires, myself for a while, just to see what it felt like. And yes. it wasn't, didn't always feel good, but it was a lot of fun. <laughs> and, uh, but I know that, that if you just give your kids unlimited money, your, your family's going to go down the toilet. George Gilder said in Wealth and Poverty that uh, the book that Regan gave to the entire U.S. Congress, uh, it said that there's only two kinds of rich people. There's the rising business class and the declining old rich. And the okay. old rich are almost always in decline because they don't know how to parent their children. They just give them a lot of money. They don't teach them the family business. And by contrast, and they go down the toilet. They become suicides, drug addicts, flakes, alcoholics like my father. Uh, right. A big alcoholic. And, um, but, oh, he had a glamorous life. And I'm trying to sell my book to television so that uh, <laughs> one day we'll see his story in the 1920s as the gilded F. Scott Fitzgerald youth. Uh, running around, you know, New York, Hollywood, Europe, you know, and rubbing elbows with Howard Hughes and presidents. And, you know, it's, it's just a really delicious bit of uh, story in that section of the book. So that would be like season one. Uh, <laughs> but we'll see about that. But anyway, bottom line, don't spoil your kids. Make them work. The rising business class. Tell them you're going to get a job. You're going to have to work. Better do good in school. Otherwise, you're going to be, you know, you're not going to have a lot of money and not be right. comfortable. Yeah. Now, so, speaking about hard work here and kind of that entrepreneurial mindset, a lot of people are, are going to be wondering, how do you, A, start or get involved with a movement? And then how do you sustain it? Uh, you went up against some big, big entities, <laughs> like these are, are billion dollar corporations that, that you were going against. And not just that, a lot of smokers and, and people back in the day there really enjoyed their habit and their mm -hmm. addiction and didn't want to see all this control placed on them because then it takes away from from obviously their pleasure and being able to, to smoke indoors or on a plane or anything else. How kind of mindset wise or uh, uh, persistence wise were you able to actually A, go up against these entities and then B, keep it moving and sustained? Well, it took some courage. Uh, it took a little courage to stand up to them, uh, but they took a tactic uh, which was actually helpful to me. Uh, they left me alone. I mean, in, really? their cynicism, they, in their cynicism, they may have thought, well, he's really building goodwill for us. He's a Reynolds and he's you know, trying to do the right thing. So some cynical person at RJR just said, leave him alone. And wow. that may be what happened. Also, uh, you know, I don't think that they... I wasn't a serious threat to them, except public relations was. And um, I was able to call a great deal of attention. Uh, and I stumped for dozens of state tobacco tax hikes and smoking bans at the statewide level and so on and so on for many years. Uh, and I countered their ballot measures. And I delivered a 
very articulate, powerful message in city after city. And we kept winning in city after city, not because of me. I was one tool in the toolbox that uh, the American Lung Association would use or the American Cancer Society. And I worked uh, together with them. I made a living as a speaker. I'd get like, oh, $4,000 from a college to go uh, speak. And I would often throw in a talk for free so mm -hmm. they could place me into a local middle school or a high school because my real love is the talk I give for the kids. We made a video of that um, one talk I gave, and I'm very proud of that. And we've sold about 12,000 of them. Okay. So I figure over a million kids in, in the U.S. and around the world have seen the talk I give to children, to grades 6 through 12. It's called The Truth About Tobacco. It's on Amazon.com. Okay, and yes. uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful video. And I make some quite unique points in it. One of my favorite ones is a, uh, you know, I, I talk about my father dying from smoking, my memories of my dad, how kids need their dads around. I say, how many of you didn't have your dad living at home with you? Half the hands go up. And wow. then I have them. I've got them by the heart when I've got them mm -hmm. there. And then after that, uh, I get into tobacco advertising and the kids being targeted. They don't like that. And I put up ads where they were putting cartoon characters, uh, Joe Camel, on the cover right. of a package of cool cigarettes. Mm -hmm. like, Hello. And, and how do you feel that they're targeting you? And so I really built a base of anger in those kids and awareness. And right. then I talked about smoking in movies. And then I go on toward the end of the talk to talk about... Um, Gosh, uh, some thoughts that I've had. Um, I've been involved in the men's movement for you know a number of years. One of the things they'll do at men's gatherings is sometimes mm -hmm. at a retreat, toward the end, they have an initiation. And okay, yes. in tr traditional initiation, they would never, they would, they would, they would cut the, the kids. There was always boys and they would cut them or wound them and give them a ritual scar mm -hmm. and i don't i didn't tell that to the kids but I, <laughs> and I always said why the hell did they do that and one right. day i got it so i tell the children about initiation i don't say it was just boys so they would take the young ones out in the forest or the desert and they would initiate them into life often by giving them pain by right. uh, putting obstacles in their path just depriving them of food or depriving them of sleep and mm -hmm. I thought, why did the elders do that to those kids? And I got it. They did it because they were saying to those children, those teens, until today, you've been a child. And we right. have tried to shield your eyes and protect you from the evil and the bad in this world. We didn't want you to see it. We didn't want you to know that life is going to bring you some pain. One day, a grandparent may die hopefully when you're in your 50s, but it hurts us adults. And when that moment comes, are you uh -huh. gonna go light a cigarette because you feel like a smoke that you're addicted to? Are you gonna go and, and uh, drink alcohol? Are you gonna take drugs? Are you going to go open the icebox door and stuff your face? No, you hold on to your uh, pain and you stay with it and sit with it. And then mm -hmm. you will be in the world of adults 
With that, I initiate you into life. When life throws you pain, don't run from it. Face it head on. And above all, talk to a trusted teacher, the school counselor, your friends, Mm -hmm. your parents, and together we'll get through anything life throws at us. And then I came across, um, then I go into... um, So do you think this is missing? I I think this is important. Uh, Okay. Let's, yeah, definitely. Let's hear it. Yeah. Okay. All right. I came across a study by Yankelovich Partners back in the early 90s, and it said, kids today don't believe in the future. They have a keen sense of diminished expectations. Mm -hmm. And I put it together, and I realized, oh, my God, why is the smoking rate going up with our kids? And I feel like the fact that many of them are worried about the future um, might lead them to say, what the hell, I may as well smoke. So Mm -hmm. at the end of my talk, I uh, point all that out and say, look, you know, the future is looking amazing. I said, we are going to have incredible things. We may have a few bad years. There may be more, I was predicting new diseases like SARS Mm -hmm. and bird flu and whoever thought of COVID then, but I was right. right. (laughs) And I said, we may have an economic collapse. And you may worry, what, is there going to be a job out there for me? Well, I am here to promise you that we will get through anything that life throws at us. And on the other side of that, there are wondrous things coming. There are amazing things coming. So catch my faith. I've got this crazy rock solid faith that there wow. are wonderful times coming and you will need your health in those incredible years ahead that you will see in your lifetime. So hold on to your health and don't smoke, don't drink, don't use drugs. And you are the future. And we're going to have a drug-free and a smoke-free society because of you. And I, with that, thank you very much. And my talk is over. But I want to in, inspire them to believe in the future because Definitely. I think that was be, will be a motivation to hold on to their health. Okay, I'm done. Now you can go anywhere you want. <laughs> <laughs> no, let's hit on that point there uh, with health. And you mentioned basically that during these rough patches, people, of course, go more to towards addiction. What's your perspective, though, on keeping your health through these periods of time uh, and the, the amazing benefits of keeping your health when things are going rough then? Well, and all that, all that piece of my talk, the initiation and the, mm-hmm. the vision of you know, the future ahead and this coming smoke-free society, uh, every great speech ends with a promise. So I close with the promise of the coming society smoke-free because of you. But, uh, you know, I think, how do you, I mean, how do you get people, kids to keep believing in the face of all this horror that's going on. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think you do it by talking with them, (laughs) by saying words like what I just said to them. Absolutely. They have to have adults who say to them, it's going to be okay in the long run. Yeah, it may be hard right now, but boy, there's some amazing things coming and you will need your health. And the other factor is that kids don't care about their health. A lot of them, they do care about looking cool. Uh, Mm -hmm. I, you know, didn't start worrying about my health until I was in my 60s. So, you know. <laughs> so bottom line, 
Um, and I'm 73 now. But, wow. but yeah. But, well, so, let's yeah. dive into that. If we're talking longevity here and and kind of your health journey, what are a few things that you're doing at this present time to to obviously keep this amazing drive you've got going in probably well, a period where tobacco is starting to increase with vaping and everything else? What well, are you sure. doing how, for how your health? I, yeah, of course. That's that's a good question. I I I uh, I mean, I'll, I'll give it to you straight. Um, I I went into Gold's Gym in 1970, 21 years old. There's Arnold Schwarzenegger lifting weight, yeah. and I'm going, wow, Arnold, it's so cool. You know, and I was a couple years younger. And I said, Arnold, what are you having for dinner? He said, well, I'm having a hamburger and some salad. And at that time, I was an actor, if you want to see all my acting clips. And that, my training as an actor comes in handy as a... Uh, my training as an actor comes in handy in my speaking work and my advocacy work as well. But, um, and you can go to YouTube and search for Patrick Reynolds actor. And, oh my God, you're going to see a few things, <laughs> but, uh, some clips, but I began eating low calorie. So I think eating low calorie, you're literally burning, you're oxidizing less food in your intestines and yes. you know, you're going to be slowing down aging. Arnold and all those guys were taking a lot of supplements, mm -hmm. heavy doses of vitamins. And so I began taking all the supplements and I've done it for years and I still do it. And I think that the antioxidants have helped slow down the, the burning inside my own guts that, that age people and literally. And yeah. um, so low calorie diet exercise is huge. And I would tell every one of your patients to, you know, especially if they're in their forties or their fifties, to buy and read this book. It's hilarious and the <laughs> best motivation I ever had to exercise. Because since my son was born 12 years ago, I kind of let my exercise go. Well, I'm getting back in it, thanks to Metal, uh, the group that you and I are right. both in, Metal.International. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. I am, uh, I read that book and it, nothing has made me laugh harder or made me want to exercise more or motivated me to exercise more. Younger next year, how to live strong, sexy, and fit into your 80s and beyond. So that's a great right, book. Yes. So low-calorie diet, exercise is huge, and I'm getting back now, thank God. Uh, and I'm sorry I, I cut it so far back when my son was growing up, but I had to. I felt like yeah. I had to. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I had a, you know, a trust fund. I, get, I don't get enough money to live out of it, but, you know, it helps. And... Um, you know, I had a low stress life, so I was fortunate there. Sunscreen is useful. <laughs> the bottom line is, uh, you know, that, that stress, that reduced stress, I've always had a way of calming myself down, got low blood pressure. Right. And I, you know, the, the eating habits and the exercise, uh, all of that and the antioxidant supplements, all of that taken together, I think does slow down the aging and uh, I feel blessed. And I'm hoping that uh, it's not like the picture of Dorian Gray where I'm suddenly, you know, good looking on the outside at my age, but something might be wrong on the inside. So uh, <laughs> wish me luck. <laughs> I would say you're doing amazing at that. And uh, yeah, just listening to you, the passion that comes across with the work you're doing and helping out the the next generation there is 
absolutely amazing. And uh, I've just got to got to applaud you for for what you're doing. Uh, if there's one last thing you'd like to leave the listeners with, what would that be? Oh, that's very professional of you, sir. <laughs> All the great interviewers ask that. And let me think. If anything that we haven't covered, uh, just if you if you care about the tobacco-free cause, uh, support my work. Go to tobaccofree.org. And if it's Christmas time, I run a little charity I started for needy kids to get more gifts. That one is B N Elf, like B E A N E L F, like Frank, like yes. B N Elf for be a Santa's Elf, B N Elf dot org. And uh, I'm also very involved in politics. I know that in metal, at least, we're not meant to be talking about that because we're so polarized. Right, makes such yes. bad feelings. But I am. I did start a political action committee to elect Democrats, and I am passionate about that. And I'm thinking of giving myself more to that. Well, once again, I really appreciate it. And regardless of political affiliations here, your passion and advocacy is absolutely amazing, Patrick. And once again, thank you for being here. And for everybody else, thank you for tuning in to The Hardy Brain. The show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and turns them into ironclad brain performers. We'll catch you next time. Take care. Bye.